0: so God could put his arms around King David, who is a murderer and an adulterer, who he illustrates with in the next chapter, that he was saved not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace through faith, because God was passing over the sins previously committed, looking forward to the cross.
1: and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah. Today, Dr. Broge begins a new message in his series as he makes his way into chapter four. After having been witness to a great revival, Jonah is surprisingly upset about the whole situation. Let's join Dr. Brogi to find out why.
0: Take God's word with you, Jonah, chapter four this morning. Jonah chapter 4. He is a prophet who lives 750 years before Christ. And his message is just as relevant as if it were written today because the revelation of God is before you this morning. Now when we had finished chapter 3 last week, you might have thought you could have written over the top of it, mission accomplished. But actually the climax of the book comes in the fourth chapter and there are many things that God wants to do in the life of this prophet. We're going to focus just on the first four verses, but to give you a flow of where we're headed, we're going to read the entire chapter. Follow along, Jonah chapter four, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered when the sun came up. God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight should I have not had compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand as well as many animals. Now here's a book chart just to refresh your mind. We've seen that this prophet's writing revolves around two commissions. The first commission In the opening verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then his recommissioning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And we've been studying these two commissions under four headings. In the opening chapter, we see him as the prodigal prophet running away from the will of God. In chapter two, in the belly of the great fish, he does what you would do, he becomes the praying prophet. And while he's praying there, he commits to the will of God fully for his life which allows God to use him as the preaching prophet in the third chapter as he brings the message of forgiveness and salvation. But now in the fourth chapter, we will see in the next three times together, he is the pouting prophet. And so when God paints the picture of a man in scripture, he does it with great honesty. He paints the portrait blemishes and all, and it's no different with this man. Here is a man whom we found in chapter three ministering to the Ninevites, but in chapter four, we're going to find the Lord God ministering to him. He's a man who is filled with self-determination right now, self-will, and a certain unhealthy self-love. But God's not just interested in the masses. God is interested in the individual. He's interested in you. The very hairs on your head are numbered. God's commitment is not just to reach out to the world, but to grow us as individuals. Now, if you remember, with each chapter, I've given you three words that summarize the chapter under the headings. So under chapter 4, next to verses 1 to 4, write the word attitude, the word attitude. Then verses 5 through 8, write next to verses 5 through 8 the word consistency, the word consistency. And then finally, next to verses nine through 11, if you will, write the word perspective, the word perspective. So what we find here in the fourth chapter is Jonah matriculating into the Jehovah Theological Seminary. If you ever wanted to go to seminary, well, you have a chance for the next three weeks. We're gonna go through God's seminary, and God's gonna take us through three courses. First, a course on attitude, then a course on consistency, and then finally, a course on perspective. Now, let me remind you that the Old Testament was written for us, the Tanakh, as the Jews call it. They don't call it the Old Testament. It's the only Bible they have. But Paul, in referencing it, said it was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then uh, he reminds us in Romans 15 for whatever was written in earlier times. And, of course, the earlier times he's referring to is the times of the Old Testament era. The Old Testament was not written just for them. It was written for us as well. The early church for a long time had nothing but the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Christ and to help the church to grow until the New Testament was completed. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so he wants us to understand that the application of the Old Testament did not expire with the Old Testament era, and that's why typically I will preach a New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, because we are called as pastors to preach the whole counsel of God. So with that uh, introduction, let's begin God's course in attitude. First, I want you to begin to see there on your outline, Jonah's angry heart. Jonah's angry heart. That's the first point that we're going to explore. All right, the verse opens in this chapter, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What was he angry over? Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial. So you have to look back into the last verse of the previous chapter in verse 10, where we left off. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This explains what happened in heaven. Why the Ninevites, while the Ninevites repented on earth, God relented in heaven. So, how do we understand a verse like this and some 40 others in Scripture that says God repented or God relented? God is immutable. The immutability of God means he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God said in Malachi, for I, the Lord God, do not change. So when it says God relented, does it mean he changed his mind? I mean, if God knows it all, how can he possibly change his mind? Well, again, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, man, morphism, at least outside of math, refers to a state of being. And so we're describing God's state of being using human terms. And so very often God will do that in scripture. He'll use human language because it's the only way that we can begin to picture in some respects what he is like. So when the Bible speaks of God's outstretched arm or that his arm is not too short to save that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, Those are anthropomorphisms. We know that God doesn't have eyes or ears or arms, and yet those are descriptive words of God's actions in Scripture. God is spirit. Only God the Son, who at one point incarnated himself, took on a human body. And so these are human characteristics to to describe divine activity. And so when we think of how God changed his mind, let's think about why. First of all, remember, Nineveh was a wicked, wicked and violent city. You can think of people in military campaigns throughout the history of the world who have been bad dudes. These people are right at the top of the list. And if you want some insight into what they were like, you can read the book of Nahum, because some hundred years later, they went right back into their sin. So God, one, held his wrath because they were no longer living in their wickedness. They were living with broken hearts, with sackcloth and ashes. But the second reason God changed his mind was simply because he saw in the future what he was going to accomplish on the cross. And I mentioned this briefly last time, and I guess it surfaced a lot of questions, so let me underscore it again. Take your, uh, hold your finger here and turn to the book of Romans, if you will, the book of Romans chapter three. Go to Romans chapter three. I hope you bring a Bible to church. I promise you'll get much more Out of any message I preach, if you have a Bible in your hands, turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. This is a passage you should virtually have memorized. It's a very, very important passage of Scripture. Now, it's interesting. When it says God relented here in the book of Jonah, God uses a Hebrew word that describes inner suffering, the calm. It refers to inner suffering. So when God relented... The writer is using under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Jonah, a word that describes God's inner suffering in relenting. You say, well, in what sense did God suffer on the inside? Well, Romans really gives us divine commentary on that. Look at verse 19 of chapter three. Paul says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. If you look across the page at verses 10 to 18, you'll see the type change is very different because these are a number of Old Testament quotations that are strung together. So he has just quoted from the law, something the Jews revered greatly, these Old Testament passages. And so he's reminding them that these preceding Old Testament quotations which they might assume applied only to the wicked Gentile people who were lawless. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law or more literally in the marginal note of the NES, rendering the Greek, those who are in the law. In other words, he's encapsulating this truth specifically to the Jewish people. In other words, the Old Testament law that he just quoted, there's none righteous, hey, yeah, that's the Gentiles. No, he's saying that's you too, you Jews who are in the law. It applies to you so that, here's the reason, every mouth, you could see every person may be closed. One of the purposes of the law was to shut your mouth, that all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, might become accountable to God. And so it's a vivid picture of a defendant standing before a judge, and when the weight of the evidence is brought before the court, He's silent, his mouth is shut, his ego-filled heart has just been shattered. Every mouth will be stopped at the judgment bar of God Almighty. You see, that's what the law does. It pulls the rug out from underneath us. We're left with no defense, we're found guilty. And uh, why are we guilty? Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. All of us no God's law, whether we have it in written form or as in Romans 2.15 underscores, the law that has been written into your heart. Even the Gentiles who don't have a written copy of the law manifest the truth that they have it in that their conscience defends or accuses them. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, declared righteous. You could paraphrase it, saved in his sight. Why? Because all of us have known the law, and the law shows that all of us have disobeyed his law. The law can't save us, then why did God give the law if he can't save us? Notice, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God never gave his law to redeem you, he gave his law to reveal you, to show you what you're like. Paul said it this way in Galatians 3, therefore the law has become our tutor. The Old English says our schoolmaster. To do what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified. What, by the law? No, but by faith. So the law is like a mirror. You look into a mirror and you see your face is dirty. You look into the mirror of God's law and you see your soul is dirty. You see what's on the inside. And so logically, verse 21, follow. But now apart from the law, apart from the 10 Commandments, apart from trying to keep the golden rule, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, and that's a major theme in the book of Romans, how God who is righteous and holy can put unrighteous man in a righteous state with himself. How God who is absolutely holy can declare a guilty man holy without violating his own holiness. And unless you have the righteousness of God, the same righteousness that God has, unless that's been accredited to your account, the scripture is clear you'll never see the inside of heaven. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the Law and the Prophets. That's one of the descriptive ways to summarize the Old Testament. They just called it the Law and the Prophets or the Psalm, the Law and the Prophets, different things like that. And so the Law and the Prophets, all of its ordinances, all of its types, all of its prophecies, witness to the truth that you cannot be saved by your obedience to the law. The law was never the means to being saved. It revealed how we needed to be saved. So don't ever get the idea that God saved the Ninevites and people in the Old Testament era in a different way than he saves us. That, you know, they were saved by human effort, but we're saved by grace. No, he saves us on the same basis. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So, the great promise here of verse 22 is that salvation is given to all those who believe. All are in need of believing for the simple reason, verse 22 continues, for there is no distinction. For there is no distinction. That's actually the main idea of verse 23. Now, kids, you know, when they learn, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, believe in the Lord Jesus and so forth. They often learn Romans uh, 323 in the scriptural alphabet, apart from the introductory phrase, which is the subject of the clause, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're the pagan idolater that he described in the first chapter, the moral religious man in the first half of the second chapter. The religious Jew in the second and third chapter, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, a righteous man in the eyes of humanity or a wicked man in the eyes of the law, the fact is there's no distinction. Our need is the same. Why? For all, because it's causal, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that's true. He says, therefore, we're being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which came in Christ Jesus. So God justifies us freely without a cause in us. He does it by his grace. Well, how can he do that? That would seem like a judge letting a guilty person go free without any consequence, Well, he explains further in verse 25, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood. To propitiate means to appease anger. So God's anger was appeased, it was satisfied, it was finished through the blood of Jesus, our substitute. And it's, of course, applied to your heart through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God Almighty. It is showing how God can righteously forgive sin because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The forbearance of God, another translation says, while God was waiting patiently, the new NASB 2020 renders it God's merciful restraint. God temporarily withheld his judgment and his forbearance and his merciful restraint. There was his inner suffering that he put up with because he was looking forward to the cross of the Lord Jesus. So God could put his arms around King David, who is a murderer and an adulterer, who he illustrates with in the next chapter, that he was saved not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace through faith, because God was passing over the sins previously committed, looking forward to the cross. So God was able to change his mind or to relent, because he was looking forward in his forbearance what he would accomplish through his son. That's why Moses can write these words in the book of Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Oh yes he will. Although it looks forward Just understand, God in the truest sense never changes his mind. These are human words to describe how we can take the infinite God and in time and space coordinates understand what he is doing here with the Ninevites. And the wages of sin is still death. If you've been born only once you will die twice, first physically and then eternally. But if you've been born again, which is necessary to enter heaven, you will die at best once physically and you will enter into the presence of God. So back here in the book of Jonah, understand that when God sees the Ninevites repent, it's not like, oh, wow, look at that. I didn't know they were going to do that. Did you see that? They don't have this discussion in the Holy Trinity like it. Caught them by surprise. No, God is never surprised. And yet he relents. In verse 1 of this chapter says, It greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. Now that first word is one of the strongest contrastives that you can use in Hebrew. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he becomes angry. Angry. You would have thought he would have been the happiest man in the world, but he becomes angry. Now, let me ask you a question. Put yourself in Jonah's place. You're sent to Beaufort County as a missionary to reach the 200,000 plus people. You come here to preach, and all 200,000 plus repent. What would the average evangelist do? Get this news back to headquarters. Let all our supporters know what's happening here. We need to get the word out. You'll never believe what's happened here in Buford County. What an answer to prayer beyond anything we could think. Evangelist watches even the senator walk this sawdust trail. But no, not, not, not Jonah. Jonah is angry. He is greatly displeased. And the word anger means he burned within. There's an inner burning. He's ticked off. Lord, why did you do this? Why did you allow this? Have you ever been down this road? Now, we can uh, rag on Jonah, but sometimes we get angry at God. Sometimes we're greatly displeased with what seems to be unfolding in our life. Maybe not what we expected, maybe not what we wanted. And yet this man, he's a prophet but he's also a patriot and so if you're here for the introductory sermon, we understood that he had three contemporaries, Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, who had already put a prophecy out that God was going to definitely use the Ninevites to judge Israel. You forgave them? He would rather have seen them destroyed. Of course, it's down the road some when Their children's children will repent of their repentance, and the prophecy will come true because God cannot lie. So what pleased God displeased Jonah. It made God happy. It makes Jonah unhappy. That's Jonah's angry heart. Second, let's think further about Jonah's earnest plea. Jonah's earnest plea. Notice, if you will, how verse 2 begins. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I told you, God, that this is what would happen. It's kind of a funny prayer because it's really a fault-finding discourse with the Lord. He's complaining to God. And of course, the key to understanding Jonah is again understanding what drove this whole thing, and if you weren't here, this is the 8th of 10 sermons, and the prophet Jonah, go back and listen to the introductory sermon. But understand that this guy, in some respects, he said, when I was back in my own country, he was very territorial. He was just thinking about Israel and the chosen people of God, and he had lost his passion and his insight for others. When people become territorial, this is, you know, my denomination or my church or my missionary work. It's a real mark of carnality when they've lost perspective for the bigger work of God. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, had to deal with this same problem in dealing with the Corinthians. He asked this question. Now, I mean this, that each of each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. Some said, you know, we follow Paul. He's the one who came and preached to us and he led us to the Lord. And I'm of Apollos, some said, because he was a great orator. And we like Apollos, man. He can preach like nobody else with passion and fire. And Paul, well, he's unimpressive. And I'm of Cephas. I like Peter, you know, he's one of the original 12. And then the super spiritual, we don't recognize anybody but Jesus. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or you baptized in the name of Paul? That's lethal when this becomes our attitude towards the work of the Lord. Now today, if you practice any form of biblical separation with a growing apostasy that is covering over the American church, you're viewed as narrow-minded or egotistic or insecure and everything else, when in reality, you're obeying God's truth. But if you develop an attitude amongst those who are true followers of Christ and you can't appreciate the work that God is doing through them, then it is indeed an attitude that indicates that you are out of fellowship with the Lord. Sometimes Christians can develop this attitude. Sometimes they don't like that God is blessing another person when they think I should be blessed in that way. Where God is blessing another ministry when we think, I should be blessed in that way. You get very territorial. That's where Jonah is. But God's going to deal with his servant.
1: Ministry is not about us. Serving is not about us. If we begin to think it is, we're going to end up being sorely disappointed like Jonah. Serving the Lord is to be entirely for the glory of God. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Jonah 007. You can also use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets. Maybe you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Broby personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line at wagp.net. Join us next time to hear the concluding part of this message in our series on Jonah as we continue to search the scriptures.